world. Welcome back to Centered Subject. This is Elena and Jenny. Hello. As usual, and today we have a guest, Nicholas Gernier. Hi, Nicholas. Hello, Elena. How are you doing today? I'm doing rather well, thank you. And yourself? I'm well, also. Where do you find yourself, geographically speaking, at the moment? <laughs> geographically speaking, I am in my room in the Lloyd Building of the Banff Center in Banff, Alberta, Canada. Oh, is that a place, is it in the mountains? It is in the mountains, and uh, here it is also relevant to say that it's a land located on Treaty 7, oh. uh, which is... I. Do not remember the name of uh, the original peoples who are living here, but basically, it's it's in Canada. There's this tradition of acknowledging the kind of stolen land on which um, buildings are located uh, from wow, indigenous wow. people. Mm. So this is not necessarily stolen. I do not know the specifics of Treaty Seven. Mm. A few wow. different people explained it to us, but it's. I mean. Usually it's not exactly stolen, but it's like negotiated with power more on one side than the other. But um, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm sure um, where I am in Los Angeles probably had a similar history, but I don't know it. Yeah. yeah. Well, so every every place is identified in that way in all of Canada? Uh, more and more. Mm. I would say that artistic institutions uh, usually do it now. Like if it's something like... Uh, like if you just go to a random gallery, they won't do it. But if you go to like certain art artist-run centers, they would often do it. Uh, mm. Most universities are starting to do it. Most museums are starting to do it. So it's interesting because it's great that it's being acknowledged. At the same time, it also points a little bit towards the the hypocrisy of it. Mm. That you mm-hmm. know, it's like, hey, we're on you know native land and and. We're not doing that much about it. We're mentioning it, which is a good thing. Right, we're not moving away from it. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a little bit like bragging. We took this from you. Well, it's signaling. Yeah, it's signaling your cultural awareness or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to start somewhere, I suppose. You know, if you don't say, that's even... No, it's amazing compared to this country, I would say. I mean, that can't even quite... Can't even have a conversation about reparations. Can't even begin to have mm. a conversation about reparations for slavery. You know, um, and did reparations for indigenous people. But I mean, I love the specificity of that to history and geography and, you know, and just, you know, colonial history. I think that's amazing. That's like breathtaking. Canada. I think there's a lot of admiration for Canada coming from United States at the moment. Well, that's because you guys are, <laughs> are in worse trouble than we are. Right. I mean, I think we'll touch upon, there were some debates yesterday, I think that touched upon yeah. a couple of different things, I think that are pertinent to this um, this geographic conversation. But how are you, Jenny? How's your week? Oh, I'm okay. I'm, again, enjoying an overcast post-rainy moment in New York. Um, a little muggy? It's a little muggy, but it's all right. Um, it's quite a bit later here, so like as we well, as we're speaking, I think the sun's probably going to set. But I've prepared adequately. Very good. You've you've gathered your candles, and which I trust you'll light one by one. I'm ready for what may or may not happen. Um, where the light goes out. Um, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah. With our first male guest. I know, our first male guest. <laughs> first man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny situation to find oneself in. The first man at Centered Subject. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And it's funny because uh, here in Banff, I'm part of a residency that is called Trainings for the Not Yet, uh, with artist um, Jenna Van Hiswick, who is who defines her, her work as like social practice. And we're a group of 10 artists with her as faculty. And I'm the only male in that group as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I can also say that recently, like there's this um, thing in Canada, like the, the Sobe Art Award. And I was nominated in a group of where I was also the only <laughs> male. So I guess there's a, this strange moment about it. How where, do you feel about um, that? I don't know how I feel about it. I don't. Good question. Oh, how does it feel? Maybe like, how does it feel? Not even how you feel about it, but like, how does it feel to be like sort of this, the soul man? In right. the- <laughs> Quite frankly, I don't know. I don't think I can like 
feel like I represent maleness or anything like that. It's well, you, absurd when, when you do, like though, in a way. You're surrounded yeah, yeah. by one kind of community and you're, uh, you're in some ways another kind, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, just like if you were to think about it in terms of like, you know, kind of traditional identity politics speech, it would be funny because I kind of represent every possible type of dominant majority in general. Like I'm heterosexual white male and here I am <laughs> the minority. So that is funny. Yeah, It's interesting to be in the other position. I mean, I yeah. personally really enjoy the fact of experiencing a different position and not being a majority, but being like someone who listens a bit more and who just mm-hmm. kind of like, especially the group I'm in right now, like it's, it's super nice. Everybody is like super, super nice in the group and it's just a different dynamic and it's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I'm trying to imagine, I feel like I've been in situations where I was the only woman and it definitely, I don't know how I felt about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It a different it's not feel. As nice. I wouldn't say that it felt. I definitely felt very self-conscious. I think at times and careful. Right. About, yeah, I felt care. I think I felt careful about what I said and did for various reasons. Yeah, I tried to put my speech into a more organized shape, and I noticed that I would like speak in more spirals or in metaphor. And I noticed that when I'm mostly among men, like it becomes really linear and really point, pointed, like a pointed shape. I'm in social school getting to be a therapist and it's majority female, but there are usually a few men um, uh, or like male presenting people in the classroom. And that's really interesting because it's like a dominated field also. Um, but that's very normal for them. Like that's, it's been like, you know, many years, like 30 years or so, where that ends up happening. But still, those dynamics play out. And, you know, men engage with the conversations in different ways than women do. And mm. it's pretty complex, actually, you know, when you and we're, we're asked to speak about it and think about it constantly. So, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's not nothing, you know, but it doesn't have to be everything. It it's, it's quite interesting. I'm curious about what your project is about um, and what the other people at your residency, their projects, I don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of different projects. I guess like the main thing that we're doing um, at this moment is sort of just slowly working together as a group just to, like for example, one exercise that we did is uh, we were thinking about the, what's the making of it, how to make a timeline with what kind of information is relevant. And so we did a simple exercise where we had, um, well, we were asked to basically put a a lot of uh, dates on sticky notes and just put it on a long table going from as far back as we can, as we want to as far to the future as we want. And those dates had to be kind of dates that we thought were significant. So we would just write the date and whatever it was on the table. And so everybody did that for a while. Then you add, you know, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 sticky notes on the table. And then the second exercise was to take a different color of sticky notes and add like the relevance that these events had for our personal history or our family. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in relation also to um, specific acts of, uh, how can I say this, of of either resistance or um, struggle or something like something where basically our personal uh, family history is linked to historical events. And so there it's a moment where it's really interesting because yeah. as being like the only man, like I started to realize that everybody of color in the group had very different kinds of dates that they were interested in. Mm-hmm. And every woman in the group, which is everybody but me, also had a lot of significant mm-hmm. marker in time that I didn't have. And then mm-hmm. I guess like those reversals of, t- of, of position is like, it's really a learning experience because you're, you're, you know, you start to see the world through the perspective of others. And that, you know, that's, I think like everybody who's not a white man is used to do that, but it's, uh, I mean, I guess like it's more interesting for me to find myself challenged in those moments because in general, I can still, I still feel very much that like society is not very challenging in terms of the mainstream culture. Like you don't constantly bump into things that make you think, what about myself where I'm at? Well, as in this context, you really think like, really? you know, I don't know, it's a different dynamic. Yeah, I imagine like Boris Johnson or someone like that being involved in that <laughs> exercise. I feel like that would be 
really funny. And and being the only man, white man. It's sad that people that really need to do that exercise, I think, would never do it. Yeah. I think yeah. it would be fun to create a, yeah, some sort of situations where they would be. They would probably be pretty annoying at the beginning of it. But if they were surrounded by people that, you know, they had like agreed to do it and were surrounded by people who are supportive and you know, not of their same positionality, then they would probably end up doing it and like getting so much out of it and then making such a big deal about it, you know, like it would end up being really nice. Though, I don't know what these individuals like if they would end up making it cool. It'd probably get weird eventually, but they have some learning, you know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what would happen, but there is one thing though that this and other exercises have made me realize is that as a guy, you kind of have at least like what I was born in 82, I'm 37. So the kind of uh, upbringing that I had was still very much like mainstream guy culture, whatever. And mm-hmm. as a guy, I was kind of raised with this thing where you kind of need to develop a certain kind of confidence, a certain kind of thinking, a certain kind of right. way to talk about stuff. And you don't think about it. It's just the way it is. You watch movies, you listen to radio. Yeah, right? it's expected. And, yeah. and at some point, like... Uh, I realize in a setting like this that the kind of confidence that you sort of have to develop to some to some extent to mm-hmm. to uh, to live in that you know with that male identity when you grow up like you know now I don't care about that but when you're at high school for example like that can make a big difference if you're like you know yeah. if you can't talk a certain way or if you can behave yeah. or if you can fit and you you never think about those things until you end up with a moment where like in those exercises where it becomes obvious to me that the the role that gender plays and how um, confidence or the kind of confidence we're acting out takes form in speech or in the way we talk. I feel like the women I'm surrounded with have a much more, um, a, a less linear, like you said earlier, way of talking mm-hmm. about things. And the approach is very different. Like, mm-hmm. I think like I, I come to the conclusion that for me in many cases and I don't want to generalize but I feel like personally I kind of have an impulse to like go forward like just to kind of like you know put ideas on the table and then like have a certain confidence and going forward with it and do some other Mm -hmm. analysis but it's kind of like very structural what Mm -hmm. is what I'm sensing here is much more multi-dimensional and it's it's you know it's kind of an antidote to the other approach yeah um in the Deleuze rhizomal versus arboreal was the way I was always talking about that with my friend. Like I can talk about this more, this more like idea of like feminine speech, though I don't know if that's like a thing. And I don't really think it is, but this way is more rhizomal and more multidimensional or like people talk about spirals versus arboreal, like, you know, like trees in a structure or like a heredity chart where it's linear, this, then this, then this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a nice it's a nice dichotomy I think to talk, to use but I like what I like to think in in terms of this is I'm a teacher with with kids and I teach kids of different you know gender backgrounds or you know places that they're coming from and um, I try to think that everybody has these possibilities or these ways that they're going to be using speech or using thought and I try to think in ways ask questions in in many different ways ways but for me i'm asking people to do problem solving in both i think of in the terms of the rhizomal and the arboreal and i'm trying to like bring all of that out and though i can't like think of a good question (laughs) that would (laughs) just well i think it's sort of like being asking open questions versus like what should we do next questions or you know we need to solve this problem now um Versus, like, let's explore what this means to us, or that's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's open-ended versus closed-ended questions. And sometimes I'll get, like, because we talk about each other's theater works, you know, in class, and are the process that we took. Talking about process versus product, I find, is more rhizomal. There's so many things to talk about actually today because, well, the debates happened and there's so much going on politically. But um, initially, we um, thought we would focus, would, would use as a starting point this essay by um, Jack Burnham called System Aesthetics, mm-hmm. which was written in 1968 and that you brought to my to our attention. Um, and I feel like there's a, a relationship there between what you were saying and what he's talking about. So... I guess to summarize, he essentially 
So this is written in 1968, and Jack Burnham is proposing, he's discussing kind of two different strands in art making that are happening at the moment. Um, so one is sort of more immersive and environmental, and the other one is formalist. Um, would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he, all the artists, he, you know, he, he talks about these things using artists as examples. And of course, all the artists are male um, yeah. in this essay, mm-hmm. all of them. Um, not a single female artist. But also he is talking about these, I think it's applicable, like formalism is a kind of linear thinking, I feel like he's arguing. And then systemic thinking is the kind of systemic approach is something that comes from almost inspired by infrastructure and kind of the social situation of the moment. And it is kind of more, um, I mean, it's more nonlinear and it's more deconstructed and more it basically reminds me of like what an algorithmic learning is in a way you know mm-hmm. that's kind of how algorithm when you teach a neural network something you sort of train them on something so I feel like he's talking about artists in almost the sec- in a similar similar way if that makes sense no yeah I, I, I think so and I'm, there's many parts like I, I've read it a while back and I've reread it uh, today uh, in parts and it was kind of shocking to me to which degree like a lot of what he's describing could be like you know very current yeah it's it's very very current and uh, uh, some parts however have aged terribly but yeah. most of it has aged very well there's like for example like uh, there are bits where basically he's talking about the artist uh, as a perspectivist is someone who kind of wants to like consider systems as basically being f- first and foremost information, which like, you know, dating from 51 years ago, you listen to this now and you're like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like data economy. I know it's just, he predicted it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also the fact that geographical location was kind of dissolving that yeah. anything can be part of a system, meaning, living like bio like you know humans microbes information physical environment non-physical instructions built stuff immaterial things and it's it's interesting yeah i'm looking at a sentence right now it's just um it says we're now in transition from an object oriented to a system oriented culture here change emanates not from things but from the way things are done and that seems really prescient yeah absolutely but then there's like bits where um where I find that it's so depressing, like, for example, um, there's a sentence here says, in an advanced technological culture, the most important artist best succeeds by liquidating his position as artist vis-a-vis society. Yeah. Artistic nihilism established itself through this condition. And it's he's semi-advocating to give away a relation to society. And it like he's more subtle than that, but there is something about it that feels... Um, painful to read. <laughs> I feel it's maybe one of the things that for me, I feel is one of the problems of, mm-hmm. uh, of the arts in general, that this kind of like giving up on changing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's why maybe he is, he's so somehow meaningful to read right now. Well, first of all, because it was written in 1968, which was kind of a big year in 20th century, right? It was uh, yeah. the student protest in Paris and also mm-hmm. just a kind of um, a moment where kind of deconstruction yeah. ran wild. And also like this right. kind of, it was still like a sort of socialist moment still kind of for the post-war right. idealism and, yeah, like sort of hearing from that now, 50 years later, when we find ourselves right. at this particular moment. Is yeah, things like are breaking you- apart in a big way, and people wanted to break the old system, which was like the object-based system only. Yeah, And now it's, it's like that's taken over, and we're at a different place in some way. I don't know. We've deconstructed to the point of something else. Well, it feels to me like when I read this, um, I was thinking about uh, how this idea of like going from the from the object-oriented uh, era to a systems-oriented era or paradigm, and how today it feels that like I feel like we're in a system of many, many, many overlay overlapping systems, and to mm-hmm. the point where you're like a palimpsest, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and like this, this I feel like I'm always in this infinite horizontal world that's very much like the web where I can only jump from one thing to the next but it's very hard to go mm. vertically through things yeah like yes a, you know and I, I like you can't see above it like you can't have a perspective on it 
Yeah, exactly. And and I feel that like this sort of horizontal navigation that's just it means that like I can explore many things a little bit, but it's very hard to have mm. a deeper sense of wh- where I'm at on this giant plane. And yeah. it gives me also the impression that it's very hard today to become a generalist and to know enough about everything to have a sense of one's position in the world. Mm. And another <laughs> impression yet is that the infrastructure of this giant plane is something that I can't control. I'm, I'm just living on it and that's kind of it. And so for me, like the next step, and I'm, I'm trying to write about this these days, it's very hard, but then <laughs> I'm working on, on a text that I call uh, infrastructure poetics mm. as the idea of like, what is below all those systems? Like what is the infrastructure on which all those systems are built? Yeah. And trying to think about it, like just deconstructing thing and reading and different things about technology, the economy, politics, yeah. the things that I always land on is this sort of moment in the Enlightenment where things kind of got crystallized and this idea of like, on one part, you have uh, self-determination of the state, like mm-hmm. the French Revolution, all those things. Right. Then you have uh, self-determination of the individual, like a free of religion, the secular state, all those things, the human rights as well. And then there's also um, self-determination uh, through free markets. Uh, with Adam Smith and all those things. And, yeah. you know, and and I think like those together create this sort of idea of the myth of progress and of infinite growth and expansion. And infinite possibility, I think, and infinite possibility yeah. for the individual somehow and emphasis mm-hmm. with emphasis on the individual, I feel like as well. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and the myth of progress that led these to justify this idea of infinite growth and which causes basically like, you know, kind of colonization <laughs> or the yeah. the aftermath of it and the feeling that you you're just going to get to better and i feel like we still live in this myth that like if that sort of belief system is the infrastructure of all the other system that was built on top of it then in an era where there's more and more people who each want more and more resources yeah it's like the numbers won't work like this is not going to cut it for very long and the impression that I'm getting is that we should rethink that infrastructure below all those systems. We should rethink our belief system because this idea of progress is not going to work out. Have you been paying attention to Marion Williamson? <laughs> <laughs> she has some ideas about that. She has some ideas about that. Although I am concerned about her candidacy because I feel like if she does win, we'll have problems with like right. um, crystals. Um really draining the budget and crystals are the new blood diamonds. So, you know, there's some concerning. Good point. Um, I was going to say this is related to that too. Like I was going to make my case that I make for like pre pre enlightenment, pre separation between man and nature perspective and the idea that like man lords over all of nature or humankind lords over nature. So there's this like ascension towards the natural and then that makes room for colonization of the natural and for other people but i think what's happened is is something has happened with the marion williamson situation and just you know everyone's relationship to astrology and crystals and like pre-christian pre-enlightenment science mm-hmm. you know even like anti-vaxxer movement where yeah the new medievalism i call it <laughs> it is <laughs> It's like yeah. the new internet medievalism, and it's driven by women, I would say, and I think women have a lot of reason, and women of color, I think, possibly have a lot of reason to mistrust Enlightenment-era medical science and all of these things because of the relationship between that and colonization, the relationship between that and oppression. Not that I don't believe in science, you know, I'll say, but I think that that's like the beginning of it, right? And um it's dangerous because we have to believe in vibes only if we don't believe in enlightenment thinking, right? It's like but extremism. I, but there, there's, I think like there's good in betweens. Like I guess like yeah. a lot of the stuff from the enlightenment is really good. Like human rights is great. D- different strands. Exactly. Yeah. I think there are different strands that we can place more emphasis on exactly and not just yeah. um, go with kind of Adam Smith. But uh, also right. like the, there's this like idea that like when those ideas were implanted, things were going fast but much slower than today and you could sort of right i mean regulate a little bit right well i mean things like the human rights are pretty good uh, <laughs> you know it's, yeah. it's it's a good start for uh for something there's there's a number of good ideas in there i just feel that a specific association of say individualism and free market and mm-hmm. infinite growth is kind of a really dangerous mix that like 
worked for people in Europe who were not on the bad side of colonization or expansion, but like mm-hmm. to re- like, I think those those ideas were never really like confronted because yeah. economically it just kept growing, but like it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Yeah. And I see like a lot of, especially in the tech world and like, I, I see a lot of new theory coming up, which is essentially like libertarian, like which promotes something that's more equal, but true libertarianism and the forces of the markets. And it scares the shit out of me. Right. And I feel like there, there's a certain kind of like new realm of ideas that's emerging now with like, you know, possibilities of the blockchain, possibilities of startups, financial, like this big money, big, fast change, that kind of stuff is bringing this libertarianism right. to the, maybe not the foreground, but it's, it's behind the scene everywhere. It's like every major bank is now mm-hmm. like thinking about blockchain. Every politician is thinking about where technology is going, all those things. And everybody who is in technology, who has a lot of money, pretty much all of them are, I mean, I don't want to generalize once again, but a lot of them are libertarians. And libertarians usually leans to the right and not to the left. But it's super hyper-individualist, I think. And I think it mm-hmm. places this emphasis on um, the individual benefit. And somehow, if one individual benefits tremendously, then it will somehow trickle down. But of course, that never works. I think, mm-hmm. I wish that we just had more, the kind of interconnected socialist morality was more right. um, more part of our existence and we were instead of like focusing on more and more we would be focusing on enough yes. which I think a much more viable and much more right. sane and much more I think satisfactory outcome because I think even right there are these studies about, about money having lots of money you know and if you have say above a certain amount you know it really has no bearing on how you feel you know as, you know, as long mm. as you sort of don't have to worry about the roof over your head and having enough food and you know just kind of safety um then you know past that threshold it just becomes irrelevant in a way you know it doesn't really bring you kind of a deeper satisfaction but there's a kind of i guess because of the social um there's like a kind of cultural message that that is telling us that we somehow need to incur greater wealth and greater amount of possessions and that somehow everyone just catches on to that. So I would say propaganda mm-hmm. is a good solution for a lot of those problems. <laughs> propaganda? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you kind of like, like essentially change to change the message. You know, I mean, I'm, I often um, I just obtained a new book of um, kind of constructivist, which um, in the essay toward the end, Jack Burnham does talk about constructivists. But so constructivists were these artists um, working at the beginning of um, the revolution in Soviet Union. And um, they um, saw themselves as kind of poets of the revolution, you know, and they would, there were some kind of more decorative, impractical things are made, but a lot of the work that they were doing was in service of the message of the revolution, which was, you know, in this kind of new uh, quote unquote classless society and um, you know promoting these new ideas and really brilliantly done you know um, visually really beautifully done and like very exciting and I think um, you know this was from 1920s so it was like very way before I was born I was born in like 1935 so um, it was just that <laughs> funny <laughs> I keep finding another funny joke but um, but I think a lot of that stuff trickled down to when I was around, you know, in different forms. <laughs> and it really kind of underlined, I do feel like it caught that end of the Soviet days where those those sort of ideas were kind of a part of the fabric of society, you know, of like, everyone deserves the house, you know, everyone deserves, you know, that's just a given, you know, we just like everyone gets yeah. a job, that's just a given, you know, there's a sort of these basic things, you know, that were just in place. And then they right. kind of collapsed. But but I think that kind of, that messaging, you know, over a period of time <laughs> really works. Yeah. I mean, it does collapse somehow. But there are different reasons for for why the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, but I think the, the, the belief that it instilled, I think, was quite effective in many people, you know. Yeah. I keep thinking about the book um, Caliban and the Witch mm, yeah. um, by Sylvia Federici. Mm-hmm. And the the splitting up of the commons by um, the British government at a really important moment where it was sort of the invention of medieval capitalism. Well, the English um, are terrible. So, like, the, her thesis basically is just, like, um, they lived in a more communal society where the commons were the shared green space that was farmed by the village. And women had a lot of uh, power in that community. They were, like, 
creating, they were making the ale, they were the medicine women, the wise women, they were called, who were sort of the doctors of the community. They were leading rebellions sometimes against the like feudal lords and things. And then there was, um, I think King James was really involved in splitting up the commons. And then um, he justified taking business from women in these communities. Um, this is her idea. And I think it's pretty great in his like relationship through Christianity to the creation of the idea of the witch. So the powerful women in each of these communities who were very pissed and leading the children's rebellion and the peasants rebellion, um, they were really important political leaders who were doing a great job leading these large peasant rebellions. They were vilified through anti-female propaganda in the image of the witch. Um, and so this then led to the splitting up of the commons led a lot more wealth to the powerful. And then that gave so much wealth to um, late medieval England that then colonization, the colonization project started. And that's what funded it. So there's this interesting relationship in her book, which is so wonderful, but between early capitalism um, and the oppression of women through Christian you know, demonization of female power in the image of the witch, mm-hmm. which makes Halloween really not fun anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, that there are that the, in the creation in the beginnings of all of this com- competitive society and even enlightenment thinking um, was an oppression, was a serious you know national oppression and a project to to create more capital for the society. And there were, you know, and there were winners and losers in that situation. Right. So, yeah, you're even talking about libertarianism. I'm like, oh, man, those are like the great grandsons of these (laughs) people who wanted the comments. But I think all of this, like, uh, for me, like, just makes it so obvious how culture is such an important part of the economy. Huge. You know, and it's like all economic structures are, like, theorized in terms of, like, basically, like, mathematics, speculation, like a bunch of a bunch of factors that usually don't really include culture and it's such a big part of it. No, right? yeah. Well, we're like torn between this data charm and facts and also like not believing anything. So it's a strange, strange thing. You know, I feel like on one hand, we always want data to substantiate and facts and studies, but at the same time, people are sort of also not believing anything anyway. So I don't know. Right. It's a strange moment. Yeah. I think they have like a healthy, they're very healthy in their suspicion about what's real and what's not real because the powerful are manipulating the systems, but they're not motivated to find out what's really going on or they are motivated, but it's very difficult to create a consistent knowledge in today's society or I'm not sure the the rhizomic, the systems have, like you were saying before, there are so many systems connected to one another that it's really difficult to stand above them and have a perspective where you can kind of fight for what you need or, you know, make change in a, in a consistent way. I think in the world of commerce, data is very ac- kind of, it is fairly accurate in the way that it connects to human emotions. Yeah. You know? And you can, um, when you're selling something, you know, you could, and you put it out in the world, you could really get metrics of, um, you know, you can test different messages and see what works and what people respond to. And but I feel like we have a very powerful way of uh, analyzing that kind of data, but it's all kind of in the, com- like, all of it is all geared towards making profit. And it's not geared towards, say, for example, if you wanted to create a culture that is a bit different than the one we have right now, and that works with, like you were saying earlier, yeah. not wanting more, but to just be content with enough, for example. Like, how would we create such a culture? Like, the data we have... Yeah. Would, so, for example, like, I was... I went to the, uh, a small workshop this summer in Montreal uh, given by McGill University in their AI department. And it was about... It was one of those things like AI for good. And it was a workshop on design thinking on how to design products, not, like, from a top-down perspective, but more like do research, see what people want, and then design something that suits their needs. Mm -hmm. But in theory, like right now, design thinking is supposed to be like the best approach, I mean, whatever. And so uh, the exercise was interesting, but most of it was consisted in not questioning what people want. So if everybody's like, all I want is beer, that's what I want. 
is that good for you or not? Like you don't want to be paternalistic, but at the same time, you're like, well, if everybody on this planet wants AC, a big car, traveling five times right. a, five times a year, that's impossible. It's not a good thing to want. We should yeah. instead maybe of designing things to make that possible, we should perhaps change our culture so we don't like so we we, we consider critically what we want. I don't know. I mean, that's. I know. I mean, if you. Look at at the bottom of all the products and the things that I at least I'm seeing on my Instagram feed. It seems so much that people want more meaning and they want more connection and they're they're accepting that there there's a lot of depression in the world and that people are having issues with this system and they want to signal that they're doing all of this work to connect to the land. Like it's yeah. I do see that even in Marion Williamson existing as a candidate, it's like this cry for help on some level. <laughs> from humanity i know i always wonder about the revolutionaries you know when people have this really strong impetus for change for like a big cultural change and what makes people follow them but i think bernie you know i was watching the debate yesterday and i've just been generally kind of emotional and a bit maybe depressed but i was watching um i was like doing something in the studio and and listening to the debates and and there was a moment where you know bernie was pontificating about free healthcare and how people need this and that and it just made me cry for a moment because it was so um mm. well everyone else in the debate was kind of speaking of a template and being very um you know impossible this impossible that you know and he was right. being so earnest and it was so cute in 20th century and somehow yeah. brought a small to but even bernie though he's also he doesn't really question the basis you know these basic necessities that everyone had accepted as a given like you said you know the beer and the big car and you know it, yeah. and only marianne williamson <laughs> <laughs> oh fighting a big, she actually said she actually used the phrase something against the dark psychic forces so she actually said that um, it's really it's kind of amazing so many people have texted me that today like wanting me to say something about it um, well I think I think just veering into the realm of the kind of emotional and existential I think is what it, it is really missing from people and everyone sort of talking about the taxes and like and also not really answering questions they're yeah. like will you take more money I'm not talking about taking more money i'm not talking about money i'm not you know it's just it was absurd <laughs> but right. yeah and and but to speak about the existential is well i guess that's why we have centered subjects that's right that's what it's for we're almost begging her to be on our podcast right now i just put that out there that like it's that's what it's sounding like i don't yeah. know if that's what we're wanting i mean i think la is firmly placing itself behind her you know as yeah a, the city, the city of tarot and crystals. We're not allowed to do that here, but we do talk a lot about. A fellow post-Soviet and I were joking on, you know, we were like DMing about some ridiculousness, you know, and then she apparently she um, she thought she would continue. So she, this is another woman who was born in Soviet Union, moved to Los Angeles, um, and so she. I think someone posted uh, something about Marianne Williamson, and my friend thought that it was she was that it was an ironic post, you know, and so she sent a, you know, a chilly message of support. And the person became so angry because they were for real and they really oh, no. lived in Marion Williamson. And anyway, that's a funny interaction. Yeah, I'm sure those people get very intense. I was reading this article about systems theory. I watched the John Oliver um, show, the most recent one about Boris Johnson. And the two theories were that were proposed were sort of sitting right next to one another. And one of the really scary things that was put forward about Boris Johnson was, was just how he's very consciously playing a clown, but then is doing it. He's playing with the system of what a politician is. And he's like, kind of amorally, but very shrewdly um, trying to do exactly what he wants with the public so that he can lead in exactly the way he wants to. Mm. Um, Not and unusual. I don't know if this, right. I know it's like Trump is doing it, but it's like Trump does stupidly. But it's, it is kind of a performer, performative. Oh, I don't know if it's stupidly, but I think it is the yeah. era of performative and politicians as performers and performative politics. It's almost like postmodern. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, they are part of this, the end of this deconstructing culture 
where it's like deconstruction is so expensive. There's a guy who elected as a Ukrainian prime minister and he was oh, a yeah, you know, he was a comedian. comedian who was playing a prime minister on TV and he became elected uh, <laughs> on sort of a similar platform where he was like, Don't believe anyone, don't believe politicians, you know. I will lead you to the and the kind of blending of the simulacrum and reality. Um just that's interesting. Oh. I didn't know that. It works for people because people are so steeped, I think, in media in general and in serialized television, it's really hard to distinguish reality from what you have seen somewhere but not on the screen you know and sometimes you see real things on the screen you know your friend message or something and then you saw netflix on another tab and that's right it's like we were saying about all the systems they're kind of they're parallel they're flattened to be the same intensity and so the being a star is the same as being the president yeah and it's all confused it's interesting it makes me feel old to think about that because like i if i talk with like see i don't know like my nephew or my niece or like other like they're like 12 and 14 respectively and they don't abuse of the screen so they're you know my my brother and um, his partner they're kind of careful to not give them iphones all the time mm -hmm. but their perspective on the world is of course quite different and it's like to think about to be shocked by the flattening of the screen makes me feel old because like for them it's never been any other way like it that's always right. been the case yeah And I don't know, I kind of have like, um, I found myself lately just like printing every text that I'm reading on paper and writing on it just as a, yeah, a, same. a, 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 a tiny act of rebellion and, and poor ecologic consciousness. But it's like among those, actually, one that uh, I found really inspiring is uh, Margaret Levy. She's political analyst, kind of who uh, works, I think, at Stanford. And she, she kind of leads a uh, chair of research that leads other chairs of research on media, culture, politics, economics, and kind of everything. So she is an interesting generalist. And like her perspective on all of those kind of like changes and, and politicians coming and going and technology kind of flattening everything is quite interesting. Like she's one of the few subtle ones who is actually resisting against this idea of market and growth and those sort of um, enlightenment inherited uh, values. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, it felt like a little bit of a, mm. a clear vision perhaps among all those sort of, I don't know, repetitions of the same ideas we've heard before again and again. Right. Yeah. And, and a, a kind of like she was sort of um, putting unions and the erasure of unions in the States as like something to like, when we kind of stopped thinking collectively and mm -hmm. like yeah. people that did not benefit from the work of the unions and the fights that they did, like the younger generation who did not see how hard it was to get whatever privilege, didn't, didn't believe that unions were that useful and therefore yeah. unions kind of crumbled. Yeah. And so I have this uh, feeling that unless we can start to learn to think collectively again, yeah. it, it may just at some point be inevitable that it will come in a much more harsh way. And I, I can't not think whenever I think about like, culture as a way to change uh, a political or an economic system or thinking collectively. I mean, I can't help but thinking about the larger experiments like the Chinese Cultural Revolution or, you know, yeah. Stalinism or whatever, where those were really harsh. <laughs> They were, but I think it's also a mistake to view things through like a singular perspective of, you know, a disaster happening, you know, within a certain social order, because there are also other things happening, you know, that were not... Of course, we don't want the. But I think that that's actually something that happens with um, with people. You know, when they that's one of the reasons for dismissing kind of socialism. Um, I think now because people point out these couple of things. You know, and they're like, oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's the Phnom Penh. You know, there's the um, the Stalinist revolution. But there's like also other things that happen. And of course, the, the terrible things were absolutely terrible. But I think if we look at also some good things that were maybe. A, Occurring, right. you know, at a different time. Like, there's a possibility, I think, of of making some making kind of a a way of living that combines the good of different, you know, political ideologies. Essentially, I think also the perspective that looks socialism and and communism in that way is coming from capitalism, and capitalism does a really great job of hiding the genocides and the power differentials yeah. that were really violent within itself. You know, like the fact that all capitalism in the United States was based on slavery and on black bodies and incarceration is related to capitalism. So that's all hidden. And then there's a lot of judgment of communism and 
you know what I mean, and socialism. And I think if we put them both out there at the same time, it's, you know, they're both horrifying. They have both been horrifying. And yeah. the, the things that I fear is that, like, if we pursue in this sort of individualistic track where we each individually wants more until we really run out of everything and, you know, I don't know, sea level gets higher, there's less land. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my only fear is that if we cannot find a way to think collectively soon enough at some point it will be so harsh that if you imagine that yeah. the person who will have to think collectively because there's no other way around it is a guy like trump like that's where it leads to you know a stallion or whatever right and i i fear that like by the time we're we're actually thinking about it it'll be so late that there'll be well, do you just have a like a neoliberal tyrant basically in yeah, instead of a communist I, tyrant which you know <laughs> is not going to be any better <laughs> Right. I don't know. It scares me. All this stuff yeah. really scares me. Me too. Yeah, we do need to collectivize somehow, somewhere. Before I forget, I also I wanted to recommend this book that I just got. It's called The Red Hangover um, by Christian Godsey. And it sort of it talks about what I mentioned earlier about the way that the kind of communist socialist ideal has become sullied, you know, by, by the kind of disasters that have occurred. and But also how the democratic ideals... Um, are also sullied by connections to the neoliberalism. And yeah, it's just a really good, um, she's a Slavic professor of feminist and women's studies. So yeah, good book. That sounds excellent. Yeah, I'll post it in uh, somewhere on the episode. Can yeah. I make one recommendation of, yes. uh, for her reading? So uh, I discovered through um, well, uh, a long path, but basically I discovered this thing called um, the Future of Humanity Institute uh, at Oxford, led by a philosopher called Nick Bostrom. Mm -hmm. And it's like for anyone who hasn't read like texts that try to encompass what the future of humanity and AI may look like, mm -hmm. um, I don't think he really like his voice is one voice among many that talk about it. And I think he's way off the map in a number of issues. But I think it's really interesting to read about it. In particular, there's one paper um, that talks about, it's called the vulnerable world hypothesis. Mm. And this thesis says that because we don't have any kind of uh, mechanism for um, uh, coordination on a global scale, that if ever humanity keeps accelerating technologically, which we are. Yeah. And at some point we end up with some kind of scientific discovery that's terribly dangerous. Like the example it gives mm. is imagine if an atomic bomb was like a hundred times easier to make that basically like six like science kids were capable of making it because it was easy. Like how then would humanity survive that? And his, his thesis is that humanity as it is now is in a state of semi chaos because we don't have a large, like good, coordinating mechanisms and therefore we're doomed unless like the two things he proposes is like a form of world governance which mm -hmm. arguably we will do at some point and the other one is increased surveillance to the point where like mm. everything we say is monitored or do mm. and the the thesis is kind of like so wrong on many levels but at the same time i just kind of recommend the reading for anyone interested because it it kind of blows your mind mm -hmm. in this direction of thinking yeah. it's really weird oh yeah i'd like to read it i wonder also where all these things kind of put us as artists you know or where they direct us those thoughts yeah i'm always i guess i'm, I'm always wondering that when struggling with these big ideas of like my ex was always making this joke when we lived, when Nick and I used to live together, you know, and we'd have people over and we, um, and we would have these deep, basically the podcast conversations in the kitchen and he would, he would be like, he'd like roll his eyes and he'd be like, oh, everyone is saving the world again, but no one is taking out the trash. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So it was, um, there was some truth in that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but I do wonder, yeah. you know, and I would always sort of brush it off. But, but yeah, I wonder. But culture is so important. But how do we... That's a really important point. I'm glad you made it. I mean, you said before <laughs> that you worry about your objects, you know, that yeah. you try not to. And scaling them down is my way. Yeah. Right. Uh, you, you do that on purpose, you know. Um, I don't know. I try to create dialogue between people like good conflict management that's something I try to do in my teaching work that seems important and like it's not gonna make things worse do you mind sharing how you do it like for giving an example I'm a student of nonviolent communication methods so um it's very difficult but it's about martial 
Rosenberg, I believe, is his name. It's it's a great book, but it's about understanding when you feel frustrated in a situation or sad or any sort of emotion. Like the first thing you're supposed to do is notice how you feel in your body and where the emotion lives in your body. And it's act, that's actually a really wonderful place to start just in general of like grounding yourself in your body when you feel intense in any way and finding it there and taking a moment before you act. So the language all into itself that can be practiced over time. And if you start or that kind of thing, you can get better at it. And it's like taken me a year, but I noticed a couple days ago that quickly kind of summed up how I was feeling based on like what my stomach did. And I wasn't able to do that a year ago. And so, I mean, I've had help and taken somatic therapy stuff. And so that's really helped me. And I try to talk about that with my students. So then you, you first figure out how you feel and connect it. And sometimes it takes a week, which is very challenging. But sometimes you can take it down to five minutes, figure mm-hmm. out why you feel that way. And then you try to figure out, oh, okay, once I know how I feel based on my body and what the situation was, it, do I need to speak about it to the other person? And sometimes you just need to speak about it to yourself. And sometimes you need to speak about it to a close friend or somebody. And sometimes you really do need to communicate with the other person about it. So that's the second part. And then the third part is how you speak about it. So then it's like there's this very formalized language around it that the listeners can look up and I can tell you about. But, I mean, it's very very much like I feel this way and you have to choose certain words about it. You can't blame with your language. I feel good, bad, it's sad because this happened. Because I have a need for, and you have to have figured out ahead of time what you have a need for. So, and then the person responds, but the person, it's not about how the person responds. It's just about you reporting, first knowing, and then reporting very clearly how you feel. And there's something really great, I think, about taking reactivity out of behavior. Um, it's very, very challenging, but I think it's really valuable. And then addressing emotions. So I think a lot of things are done, it's like really functional kind of reactivity way. Um, and I think that's a big part of the problem about lots of things that happen. So, And I think we've become, we're kind of a, a bit of an informal society now where etiquette has, has really shifted, you know, and mm-hmm. we have so many ways in which we communicate informally, um, you know, through like people messaging you or, you know, texting right. or like dating apps. And, you know, there's just kind of like no decorum in a way. And so we've really, right. <laughs> I guess in general, we've, um, that kind of casualness creates a space for impulsivity. Totally. Complete it's also, reactivity. It's also funny how the spectrum of uh, levels of civility or reactivity has increased within those messages. Because like, yeah. there's people who are just like text a word or something. And then there's others who send you a text message. And it's very <laughs> formal. It's like, hi, dear. I hope this finds you well. I have not seen you in a long time. And eventually build up to the content and, yeah. uh, and end with like best regards or something. And you're like, wow. It's, it's and meanwhile, like, say my 87 year old aunt who now is on Facebook and emails and everything and is having a, you know, is pretty good at it, but she, Uh she was very formal in her letters or she used to send letters. But now that, you know, we don't, we communicate like a few times a year on my email and she's very informal in her emails. And it's really funny. It's as if for her, like, the email wasn't really a message. It's just like, I don't know. (laughs) It's, it's completely like, uh, a different format for her and her yeah. way of communicating. Yeah. And I find that really yeah. funny. It's like some people are yeah. overly formal, others are totally not. Are you aware of this great Facebook group where people are pretending to speak like they're um, boomers? Oh, no. It's That's very great. funny. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll invite you guys. It's fun. <laughs> but I think it, yeah, it's a little bit maybe pertinent to what's going on with your aunt. But maybe maybe it's a little bit mean. I don't know. <laughs> Can we invite people who are actually older on this? Group? I think we should. I think we should, and they should yeah. give everyone some critique. Um, give some they... feedback because there's probably a wide variety of it. You know, I will say that this MVC thing isn't necessarily formal. I'll say that it's like it's more about like being truthful, right? It's like yeah. about clarity, yeah, versus like being proper. Maybe yeah. I don't even know what truth is anymore. The idea is that. The body knows. The body the maybe knows, is. yeah. And then, and the question is, you know, do you tell your truth once you know it? Someone else, do you need yeah. to? And then once you do, you know, then it gets more complex. Oh yeah, 
Hmm. In a classroom, however, I will say, I like to keep my classroom really formal. I guess teaching is a good way of, of, of like, affecting change, right? Like, that's one, a really good way where you mold those young minds yeah. into collective spirits of the future. Yes, we create a, you know, a, a nice, respectful collective. That's the goal. It's, like, very hippie, with all, but all these, like, trying to, you know, try to have safety in a certain way. It works pretty good, mostly. Today we're having a very deep conversation about um, large mushroom sculptures that they had made. <laughs> it's pretty good. We were debating, we were talking about how to critique one another's mushroom sculptures in the most open-ended way that we could without being cruel to one another. <laughs> this is, doesn't that look like a mushroom? Sorry, I don't know. Uh, I affected a French accent. Uh, I'm sorry, Nicholas, cruel. I don't know. I think it was... <laughs> I was, I was being an art critic from France. I don't know why. <laughs> and you hated I they, my mushroom. <laughs> and I hated the mushroom. I was mean. Uh, <laughs> but they all came from New York, those critiques. <laughs> oh, no. They were, yeah, that they were. They probably were very structural, structural, formal. Yeah. Did you develop any conclusive techniques for criticizing mushroom uh, sculptures? Um, yes. You say, I think that you could have more spot on it you know instead of <laughs> chloe needs chloe should have had more spots you know like oh what's wrong with chloe i need to make a mushroom sculpture yeah i'll show you i'll send a picture please send post picture can we post it on instagram it would be great okay okay sure. Oh, anonymously. All the I just like yeah. to say also about artists and reading people. Do you know that Boris Johnson's mother was an artist? She was a painter. Uh, maybe. Oh. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, George W. Bush is a painter. He's having a show. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. he's here. Let's go. Yes. Yeah. He's really into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there is that part in the John Oliver about how the first time Boris Johnson did a Boris Johnson was when he was in a play. And he was in a Moliere. Also, I, his it's like her sis, his sister was interviewed, and her posh British Britishness is like off the charts. It's crazy, but um, she's just like talking about how he forgot his lines when he was like nine years old. He forgot his lines, so instead of saying that he forgot his lines or admitting it, he just stood behind a pillar and, and like read his line really loud as a joke, and everyone laughed. And that's the first moment that he could away with not doing his work by making fun of it by like working on the system of what was expected of him which mm-hmm. is comedy but is certainly not doing a good job at job yeah <laughs> yeah so i thought that was really interesting and so he's continued with that as a way to distract being funny and being charming will get you far yeah it's true it will distract people from knowing that you're not doing your work exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean what's sad is that his comedy's good yeah. Way and so, but we because it's instead of governing, it's sort of like a problem. Thing with Trump, in a way, like not that he's funny, but he's good at being the apprentice guy. You know that that doesn't mean that he needs to be president. But like, I wish that he could just be happy doing his entertainment. Not his fault. He got there in a way. You know that uh, arguably politicians are not like very potent figures anymore like i mean yeah. trump is because he's you know he's the president of the u.s but overall like, like for example in canada now um we're heading towards elections in october and right now it's kind of like the conservative party is a little bit higher in ratings than uh trudeau and the, the, uh, the liberals but I, I looked earlier today at their electoral platforms and essentially they're saying kind of the same thing. The conservative party is just saying like, you know, we're for free markets, but they make sure that they're also for the environment and for all those other things. Yeah. And so basically the only difference is in tone kind of, yeah. um, and, and posture and, and like, I don't know. I, Trudeau is like, you know, good looking guy with whatever. And when he opens his mouth, there's like wind with sound that comes out, but he's kind of saying nothing every time. And like, it makes me really wonder, like, what's the role of a politician today, really? Is it really to govern? I think to just to mediate between tech companies, yeah. you know, like sort of like big business and um, like I don't know, lawmaking or something on the public, you know, it's essentially it's kind right. of like a mediator between. Yeah, and not get in the way. I feel like the finance has more power and kind of more purchase power, if you will, I guess, which makes, makes sense as finance. Yeah, because I mean, of the lobbying systems, yes. Or is it a bit like the the Queen of England? Like, you know, it's just like, 
just someone who stands the role and does like I, don't know. I guess so. Yeah, but I guess they're not where the power resides. I suppose. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with war and uh, de- defending and being like the face, the, the you know political face to other countries and representing our strength or something. I think that's very American. Shouldn't we have just mediators as politicians then? I wish yeah. it'd be lovely. I think we should have animals um, as heads of state. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Yeah. I know just the cat. Yeah, I just know, know this great cat, George. <laughs> he can make a great <laughs> president. <laughs> He's really lofty and impressive. He would do a good job. He'd be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'd just like meow, meow away <laughs> for years. So I guess all the power will be for the interpreter. and Yeah. Which is kind of how it is now, anyway. Yeah, that's right. You're well, furthering the, the always, systems. Always yeah. closing on the depressing note over here. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> with a bit of fur thrown in. But I mean, the problem with this, with talking about systems, is kind of that you end up in this absurd, yeah. like in the labyrinth, yeah, entanglement. And like the the thing too with Jack Burnham is that when he wrote this text, um, it was. Well, first 68, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, assassination, the protests in Paris, like yeah. all, those, all those things happened then. Also, like kind of the end of the collective utopia of the hippies with like, you know, yeah. uh, all the stuff that happened like in uh, Altamont Drive in, in California where like the Rolling Stones right. concert people got shot and like all, all those kind of like terrible things. The Manson murders weren't they? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that was 69. Yeah, but that was like yeah, after. That was just, yeah soon after and then there was a Vietnam war and all those things yeah. and apparently Birmingham got so like depressed by what his idea of systems like how it could be interpreted in regards to all those other things that like yeah. he eventually retired uh, and became uh, a Kabbalist oh well there you go so he just like kind of isolated himself in a suburb of Washington yeah. and studied the Kabbalah I guess when in doubt go to Judaism is my advice to the listeners I think it's a good thing to have like in terms of my stuff and you know to take a moment away from society and kind of hear your mind somewhat or you know reground yourself I think there's nothing wrong with that ever yeah Yelena have you uh, have you read uh, some of the cabal or all of no, it or? No. no I think my only exposure really was just studying the uh, like the bible when I was in um, Israeli high school but I don't know I haven't really gone other than literature but it does make me think of um you know, just that we were talking earlier about kind of people turning to this kind of medieval, you know, just system of understanding the world in a kind of more spiritual way. Um, yeah, I guess when when the the kind of industrial complex of the society becomes unbearable, people turn to these two angels and to scriptures and to myths, I guess, essentially. Yeah. Mist, did you say? Uh, myth, but also mist, sure. <laughs> it can all be categorized as mist all these things maybe give it, give it a harsh category <laughs> okay let's let's end on some sort of um, a hopeful note I'm curious about what's going to happen in the debates tonight I am oh, yeah. excited about that I don't really care particularly what happens but it does feel like something happening I'll say mm-hmm. um possibility for change and I feel really motivated by listening to Warren and Bernie I do mm-hmm. and I, I did I got little tears of hope so whatever it is I don't know what it is actually I don't know what yeah. the contents of the tear are but it does come and there's something to that so can I ask you if you have a favorite um yeah I'm on the Bernie Warren train for sure I'm more yeah. on the Bernie train but I don't think he'll win I think Trump will win oh one weird thing did you see that that he was he was saying that he was going to work on importing drugs from Canada huh like Trump is going to work on that which is sort of like flipping what? Bernie's whole thing where he was working on talking about you know the Canadian health system being better so they're like eating Bernie's ideas they're taking huh. that into the Trump brand, which I found really disturbing. It's not really the same thing, but you know what they're saying. This is just like a purchasing arrangement, which is yeah. It was a bad sign to me, though. I was yeah. like, oh god, what if he just sort of, like you were saying, the Canadian politicians, you know, they start to kind of, what if he starts to morph these policies? But like, 
the lip service of the policy, you know, and not mm-hmm. the actual policy to just like glom on more centrist voters. I got really nervous. I'm going to research that after we get finished and find out more about what that meant. Mm-hmm. We think of Canada a really inspiring place, I have to say. So I hope Canada stays more left. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I need it to. It's really important to me. Well, from here, it seems like um, there's not much movement. I mean, all, <laughs> all I'm saying is like it's it's it can either stay Trudeau liberal, which is kind of okay, uh, okay status quo Canadian like mild politics, or it could go towards more conservative, um, which is quite likely. So uh, <laughs> it's it's not particularly uh, good looking, but at least our Canadian conservatives are pretty mild by comparison with the U.S. conservatives. They're, you know, decaffeinated uh, conservatives, sort of. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. And usually we have advice for, or on some occasions we've had advice for our listeners. So (laughs) if they feel stressed out by, by the debates and by neoliberalism and capitalism I highly recommend I had really a fun time at yoga the other day where I stood on mm-hmm. my head and it really felt nice so if you just yeah. feel overwhelmed and you can just turn upside down and maybe it'll help that's yeah. nice I went to a cemetery and saw a music show and that was awesome I suggest going to a cemetery okay and doing something interesting it's my goth suggestion and for the week. Nicholas, do you have a, a suggestion? Yes, I have one. Uh, I was privileged enough to be on a medicine walk or a, a tour uh, in a forest with an indigenous guide. And he uh, pointed at so many of the plants around us and explained what you could do with that. And it absolutely blew my mind. Oh. Um, and... Yeah, if anyone has any occasion, wherever they are, to figure out in what land they are, and if on location there is mm. access to indigenous guides to lead them through the land and to mm. see what among which plants they live in, it is amazing. It is anyway. That was that really blew me away, and it it connected me right back to this moment in time. Cool, great advice. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us um, for this insightful meandering discussion, and. We wish you a great residency time at Banff. Thank you very much. Yeah. And hopefully you will return again to Centered Subject in the future. Yeah, and I will at least return to Los Angeles and see you in person. Yes, that would be so great. Yes, indeed. Well, on that note, um, over and out. I hope everyone's having a great week and we'll be back next Thursday once again with more pithy topics. That's right.